Section 7 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, January 27, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rahul. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 13, January 27, 1880. Sherard. Out on the sea, when the tempest is blowing, O'er the waters dark and wild, Guide I the sailor, his pathway showing, Over the shoals and the currents flowing, Never through me is the ship beguiled, Many a wandering step have I guided, Children at school have I often taught, Many disputes through me are decided, Oft has my help, though sometimes derided, Even the muse of history sought. Off with my head, I am a living creature, Trembling I follow, I guide no more. Large-eyed and gentle, of kindly feature, Hunted by man in the wilds of nature, When he is coming, I fly before. Cut off my head again, and for ages, Long have I kindled the spirit of man, Worshipped by artists, adored by the sages, Present and the past, combined in my pages, There all the secrets of beauty you scan. When skates were bones, Though it appears to be impossible To fix on the time when skating first took root in England, there can be no doubt that it was introduced there from more northern climates where it originated more from the necessities of the inhabitants than as a pastime. When snow covered their land and ice bound up their rivers, imperious necessity would soon suggest to the Scans or the Germans some ready means of winter locomotion. This first took the form of snowshoes with two long runners of wood, like those still used by the inhabitants of the northerly parts of Norway and Sweden in their journeys over the immense snow fields. These seem originally to have been used by the Finns, for which reason, says a Swedish writer, they were called skridfinae, sliding fins, a common name for the most ancient inhabitants of Sweden, both in the North Saga and by foreign authors. When used on ice, one runner would soon have been found more convenient than the widely separated two, and harder materials used than wood. First, bone was substituted, then it in turn gave place to iron, and thus, the present form of skate was developed in the north at a period set down by the Scandinavian archaeologists as about A.D. 200. Frequent allusions occur in the old northern poetry which prove that proficiency in skating was one of the most highly esteemed accomplishments of the northern heroes. One of them, named Colson, boasts that he is master of nine accomplishments, skating being one, 
while the hero harold bitterly complains that though he could fight ride swim glide along the ice on skates dart the lance and row yet a russian maid disdains me in the edda this accomplishment is singled out for special praise then the king asked what the young man could do who accompanied thor thialfi answered that in running upon the skates he would dispute the prize with any of the countries the king owned the talent he spoke of was a very fine one olaus magnus the author of the famous chapter on the snakes of iceland tells us that skates were made of polished iron or of shank bone of a deer or sheep about a foot long filed down on one side and greased with hog's lard to repel the wet these rough and steady bone skates were the kind first adopted by the english for fitzstephen in his description of the amusements of the londoners in his day time of henry the second tells us that when that great fen that washes moorfields at the north wall of the city is frozen over great companies of young men go to sport upon the ice some striding as wide as they may do slide swiftly some better practised to the ice bind to their shoe bones as the legs of some beasts and hold stakes in their hands headed with sharp iron which sometimes they strike against the ice these men go as swiftly as doth a bird in the air or a bolt from the crossbow then he goes on to say that some imitating the fashion of the tournament would start in full career against one another armed with poles they meet elevate their poles attack and strike each other when one or both of them fall and not without some bodily hurt specimens of these old bone skates are occasionally dug up in penny parts of great britain there are some in the british museum in the museum of the scottish antiquaries and probably in other collections though perhaps some of these finds are not nearly as old as fitzstephen's day for there seems to be good evidence that even in london the primitive bone skate was not entirely superseded by implements of steel at latter part of the last century one found about 1839 in moorfields in the boggy soil peculiar to the district is described as being formed of the bone of some animal made smooth on one side with a hole at one extremity for a cord to fasten it to the shoe at the other hole is also drilled horizontally to a depth of 3 inches which might have received a plug which another cord to secure it more fit effectually there is hardly a greater difference between these old bone skates and the acmes and club skates of today than there is between the skating of middle ages and the artistic and graceful movements of good performers of today indeed skating as a fine art 
is entirely a thing of modern growth. So little thought of was the exercise that for long after Fitz Stephen's day, we find few or no allusions to it, and up to the restoration days, it appears to have been an amusement confined chiefly to the lower classes, among whom it never reached any very high pitch of art. It was looked upon, says a recent writer, much with the same view that the boys on the serpentine even now seem to adopt, as an accomplishment, the acme of which was reached when the performer could succeed in running along quickly on his skates and finishing off with a long and triumphant slide on two feet in a straight line forward. A gentleman would probably then have no more thought of trying to execute different figures on the ice than he would at the present day of dancing in a drawing room on the trips on the tips of his toes. Even as an amusement of the common people, it is not alluded to in any of the usual catalogues of sport so often referred to. The Monkeys of India A missionary in India gives an interesting account of the monkeys that live in that faraway country. He says that in the morning, during the cold season, the monkeys are always very listless, but as soon as they are warmed with the rays of the sun, they are as playful as kittens. They will jump over each other's backs, slap each other's faces, pull each other's tails and even make pretense to steal each other's babies. The grey and the brown species are found nearly all over the continent of India. The former is more daring and destructive, and the latter more mischievous and cunning. They both form themselves into separate packs or tribes and rarely go beyond a certain boundary. They seldom migrate, except it be for food or water in times of drought and scarcity. This wild citizenship seems to be respected, for they very rarely trespass on each other's ground. Each tribe has a leader or king, which can easily be recognized from the manner in which he conducts himself. He is evidently aware of the dignity of his position. Like nearly all other wild animals, they have a keen sense of danger. When, when a certain whoop is given, however, scattered or tempted to stay, in a few moments, they are hidden on tops of the highest trees in the locality. They have the bump of destructiveness largely developed, and it is no small calamity when a tribe locates itself near a village. Scarcely anything in the shape of fruit or grain comes amiss to them, and when neither are to be had in the hottest part of the year, they eat the stems of the young leaves. When they commence upon a field of lentils, pulse, or peas, they always pluck up the plant by the root, pull off one pod, and then fling the plant away, so that it does not require many days to clean the whole field. Ripe mangoes have a special attraction, and it requires no small amount of vigilance to keep them away from the groves. Dogs, however, strong and fleet, are of very little use to drive them away. 
for the monkeys are sagacious enough to know that their safety is in keeping near the trees. When the dog has spent himself with barking and screaming at the foot of the tree, a monkey will come down to the lowest branch and whack his long tail within a few inches of the dog's face. And when the poor dog has retired, completely foiled, a monkey will soon be after him to tempt him to a second encounter. Mischief is certainly in their hearts, for not content with stealing the produce of the gardens and the fields, they will pull off the thatch from the native huts, fling their tiles from the better-built houses and shops to the ground, and we have seen them even try their best to rift the stones from the temples. A native town in one of the Zamindari estates was so mutilated by them that it looked as if it had sustained a siege. Some years ago, after making our arrangements for the encampment at night, we constantly had our peaceful rest broken by a tribe of brown monkeys. They evidently thought that long possession had given them a prior claim to the grove. For our own comfort, it was felt by all that some means must be adopted to drive them away. Accordingly, one was shot. Death was not instantaneous, and quite a number of came to see it die. They looked with startling interest into its face, but as soon as life was extinct, they bounded away. Fear had fallen upon them all, and not a sound was heard from them during the night. Early next morning, they assembled in an adjoining field. The sharp and quick manner in which they turned their faces, first in this way and then in that, was a sight not soon to be forgotten. They had instinct enough to see their only safety would be in flight. In the course of an hour, the king headed the tribe and away they went and not a solitary monkey was seen in that region for years afterward. The natives dared not openly commend us, but they were not a little pleased that we had rid them of creatures so destructive to their homesteads. The monkeys are very numerous too in the sacred cities, and especially in Benares and Puri. Within a few miles of the temple of Chakanot, there are many hundreds, if not thousands, they are so tame and they will come down from the trees and eat rice from the hands of the pilgrims. When the pilgrim presents his hand with the rice in it, the monkey seizes it with his left paw and he will never let go his grip until he has taken every grain. Very few persons are injured by monkeys, but they will sometimes seize a basket if there be fruit in it when carried by a woman or child. The natives often say that monkeys can do everything except talk, and they would do that if it were not for the fear of being made to work. End of section 7. Recording by Rahul.